Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tattoos and Torah. I'm Rabbi Iggy. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have a guest today. Um, today with us is Rabbi Michael Paris. Hello, Rabbi. Hey, good to be here. My name is Rabbi Michael Paris. <laughs> I am I am the senior rabbi at Temple Sinai of Cinnaminson, which is in South Jersey. I am a graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. And before I graduated, I, I, I worked as a chaplain at Einstein Medical Center in North Philadelphia, which is like a level one trauma center. So really important work kind of in the beginning of the pandemic. But uh, I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, uh, we're excited to have you. So um, other than, of course, always the joy of speaking with other rabbis, um, I, I guess right to like uh, from from reading about you and from talking to you, um, the trajectory to become a rabbi was not was not evident, right? Was not clear, right? You were you were well on your way to be in politics. I, I, you know, if there was a list of things I thought I would never be, I always say this. If there was a list of things I would never, ever be, it would be NFL player followed by rabbi. And, and I don't know who can <laughs> see me, but I'm like 5'8". You know, being a rabbi was like the furthest thing possible. Um, one, because of who my rabbi was growing up. Uh, right. My rabbi was a really bad person. He was a sociopath. He had his wife killed. You know, it's a famous story. Um when I was about 10 years old, this all kind of came about. And so at, by the time I had my bar mitzvah at 13, I was like, I'm done. I, you know, I don't really believe in this whole Judaism thing. I don't know if I believe in God. And rabbis seem to be fakes and phonies. Um, so, and murderers in your case. And murderers, you know, which is just, you know, it's amazing how many people to this day come up to me and go, I can't go back into synagogue because of what that guy did. Um, just to show you the impact. And I might have not understood it then, but it taught me a valuable lesson in my work today about the the level of trust that rabbis and congregants and rabbis and the people we meet have and how important that is and how, you know, and how precious that trust is. And it can be lost very easily and it, and it can be gained. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was a secular Jew for many years. I studied politics. I worked in politics when I was at Temple University, but my life kind of went on a very different trajectory. Right. So, so right, there are two things sort of like in, in your, in your story that sort of that kind of move you towards the rabbi and, and both of them are significant, I think for this conversation. Um, one has to do with my favorite weather, which is snow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, right. Um, uh, and and the other one has to do also with cars. Actually, both of them happen in cars, right? There's a, yeah. there's a theme there. That, that's a really that's uh, an interesting connection. Um, so let's go in order with those two. Yes, please. It's a little out of order. Um, so I I was like I said a, t- a student at Temple University. I must have been a you know like a sophomore, close to being a junior, studying political science, and I'm driving home from school one day, and I lived in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, um, and I was at the bottom of a hill. It was like at the steep hill and there was a red light. And in my rear view mirror, I could see a person texting on their cell phone. I could like see it. And they were coming at me at a high speed and I knew they were going to crash into me. So I did what doctors and everybody says you shouldn't do. I braced for the impact and I tensed up every muscle in my body waiting for it to happen. Within like five seconds, it all happened so quickly. Rear ended. Um, I had, you know, a dislocated shoulder. I had whiplash, but the issue that was like the thing that would become really worrisome was a a dislocated disc in my lower back. And within a week, I was waking up in the middle of the night with this horrible pain going down the right side of my leg. I would wake up. It felt like somebody was ripping the muscle apart. And I would like get up in my apartment every night and I'd walk the steps just to get the pain to like the numbness to go away. Right. After a week, I was like, this is insane. Who can live like this? I'm like 21, you know, like something, you know, like right. I'm too young to be living like this. Right. So I go to the doctor and remember, this is like 06, 07. So we don't know what we know today. 
Right. Uh, and I go to the doctor and, you know, today, if I brought the same type of ailment to a doctor, they might say, let's try PT or let's right. try steroid injections, which I've had right. many times. But no, it was like, here's a prescription of Vicodin. So I start taking the Vicodin and, you know, painkiller is a very ironic name because it actually doesn't kill your pain. It intensifies right. your pain. The more pain medicine you take, the more you need it. And when you right. come off of it, your pain spikes. So right. within a couple of weeks, I'm like, this is worse than when it started. Because, you know, the euphoria dies, the euphoria right. dies off and now the pain spiking. So I go back to the doctor. I go, I'm in worse pain than when you, than when you gave me this thing. All right, well, let's go up a little. Maybe, maybe we could just up it a little. They up it a little. A few weeks go by, month, maybe something. Go back a third time. They up it a little more. The fourth time, now the doctor finally goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't keep up, upping your dose, but it's already too late. I mean, I'm, I'm, what, I didn't recognize it as an addiction at that time because I'm in legitimate pain. I'm getting it from a right. doctor, but I knew I needed it. I knew I needed it or I was going to be in a very bad way. And it just it became a thing that was like survival. I needed this thing to survive. So right. what do you do? I went to another doctor and I right. went to another doctor. And it becomes this cycle of like anything you do to get the thing you need. Right. So, right. So, so now, right. So you're young, uh, injury didn't start as sort of like, right. Walking down the street thinking like, I want to get high, but by yeah. now you're pretty dependent on these painkillers, right. On opiates. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because you go, well, why me? Why did it latch on? Is it right. genetic? Is it something like, was I self-medicating? You know, I'm also anxious and depression from this accident. Right. You know, I'm like 20 something in a lot of pain. I'm depressed about it. Is the, is the opiates like, is it kind of like bringing together all these different elements to, you know, cause it's like, what is an addiction? What makes an addiction? Um, I didn't think it was in my family, you know, but maybe it was. Um, right. But all I knew was at a certain point was this isn't normal. This isn't normal. And it's not evident at first, but it becomes evident later on right so right so so i mean it's interesting you, you sort of bring the, the the anxiety and depression right because uh, of course we now know that right so that opiates sort of like kind of numb and blur all those as well right so like yeah. but, but 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 later on right we'll 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 get to where playing with so like that just is replaced by shame and guilt but yeah but in that moment, so 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 you're you're pretty dependent on these opiates, right? And and it sounds like you're doing whatever you can, uh, probably not telling one doctor or the other this of you're having this. Or we're like, oh my god, doctor, I just found this pain, right? So like, no, just, they call it doctor shopping now. I right. had no idea that's what I was doing. You know, you don't think like, oh, I'm doctor right. shopping. One doctor catches on, you go to another doctor. Right. You know, I always tell people, it would if there was only a drug dealer I could have bought these drugs from it would my life right. would have been so much easier it was never like that it right. was doctors it was friends it was friends of friends every day was a herculean effort to right. find these medications and it, it was a lot of money and right. you had to tell a lot of lies you had to borrow right. you know you had to sell things but it was never like I'm going to a drug dealer and it, it was never that easy and right. I think that stress is like my my dependence grew. And by right. the time I finally stopped, it was at anywhere between 80 and 100 milligrams of Oxycontin every day. Right. So we're talking high levels. No, which is a lot. That's a lot. And it's very expensive. So it was yeah. a lot of stress that went into it too. So so what, what so what do you tell yourself, right? Here you are, nice Jewish boy, yeah. right? Sort of, right? So like didn't, didn't, right? Not from the streets, right? It starts as a real... Real complaint, right? You had an accident, Absolutely. but right now you're on 80 grams a day. You're lying. You're cheating. You're shopping. You're admitting truths. You're selling things, yeah. right? So, like, what do you tell yourself? That's sort of like right because there must be moments in the mirror when you're yeah. like, "This isn't. This isn't right. Right? Yeah. Something's not yeah. working here." No, no, that's a really important question. I think you tell yourself that this is about survival. And the way I explain it to people who have never like went through an opiate addiction is like, well, what if I took your food? What if I took your water? Could you go 12 hours? Could you go 24? Could you go 36? How long before you're doing anything and everything to get the thing you need to survive? That's how I felt when it came to opiates. Yeah, I like the feeling that it gave me in the beginning. 
it was, but you were, you were only trying to get better. I was only ever trying to get better or, or healthy, you know, fight off the withdrawal. I remember the first time I went into withdrawal, it was so horrific. It was such a horrific experience. You know, like minutes seemed to last for hours, hours seemed to last for, you know, days and days seemed to last for an eternity. And you go, I'm never going through that again. I'll do anything to not go through that. So even though you know you're doing things that you wouldn't normally be doing, you justify it in your head. You right. justify it. And like, you know, it's shitty. You know, it's shitty. But like right. at the same time, what, what what could I do? That's kind of the thinking. Do you tell anyone? Is there anybody know? Does anybody catch up? Like, right? Is it's this- amazing to think back at this time, how many of my friends were going through the same thing how pervasive it was in the groups that I kind of walked in. Now, my family knew I was taking low levels of pain medicine because I knew I was in a car accident. You know, friends who weren't involved didn't know or, you know, you come, you become really adept at hiding. You hide, you know, you become a great liar. You hide the best you can. You withdraw when you can. So you really create a world where nothing is obstructing you from getting the thing the, the main priority, which is the opiates. This must be a very lonely experience. So lonely. And you ruin relationships. I mean, like remote romantic relationships kind of were ruined because of what I was going through, you know, borrowing money that I never could intend to pay back, um, promising it was for something that it wasn't for. Um, I like to think that I've done the teshuva and, repaired a lot of those relationships. It took many years for some to ever get to that point. You know, there was one that only till very recently, and we're now 11 years later in terms of my recovery, even longer into the addiction that I repaired some of those relationships. So it takes time, um, but it is very lonely. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a disease of isolation. I think it's the original disease of isolation. Right, 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 right. Do you, do you, do you say to yourself at some point, like at that time, like, I will, I'm going to stop. This is not good. I need to like, is there any internal dialogue that does say like, Mike, I mean, yeah. look at you. Yeah. 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 Um, or is it all it, like, I need if, this. No, this no, no. If I, it, you think to yourself, and I think this is genuine. If it wasn't for the fear of withdrawal, if it wasn't for the fear of the unknown of what detoxing and going, if that wasn't an unknown, I might have stopped years earlier. But that fear I had from the first time I went into withdrawal was such a powerful image in my mind. It kept me going. You know, that I think I really genuinely think that was what kept me going years after I wanted to stop. The fear. The fear. Yeah. The fear, the shame, the embarrassment of them. If, you know, because with that withdrawal would have had to admit I needed help to right. seek that help. You know, at no point do you think like, oh, these drugs are going to harm me. It's like getting help's going to harm me. Right. So, okay. So, so, so you're doing this, right? We know, we know from addiction how time consuming it is, right? Finding the pills, getting the pills, moving them from one place to the other, right? Like, right. It's, it's really quite amazing. Whenever I, uh, I speak to large groups of people in recovery, I, I always remind them, right, to sort of that, um, a lot of them sort of were moving product or alcohol or whatever from one side of the city to another when they are broke, when they have nothing, when they don't have a car, right? That somehow their creative juices are completely sparked, yeah. right, by, by the, their the, need the to daily, The daily drive right. will get you – it just shows you – like, and I always tell people who are in re- early recovery, if you could do all that, right. you could do literally anything. It's That's about right. like – because your mind, you don't realize your mind has now like went into overdrive in a way it's not used to. But if That's you right. can channel that, oh right. boy, I mean, That's it's right. like the sky's the limit. No, for sure. I I, I told even once uh, a no client of mine to like put this in his uh, in his CV, <laughs> saying like, right, I can move anything, no matter the size, <laughs> from one side of Los Angeles to the other yeah. side of Los Angeles. Just tell me when and where. Yeah. <laughs> like I will figure it out. Yeah. No, it's, I it's, mean, it's, yeah. it's very true though. It's like, a, it's yeah. one of those funny truths. And when you hear these yeah. stories, they're tragic, but they're, but it's also insightful into what, what could be, what could be right. for people. So, okay. So you, so you, you're, you're using, you're in active addiction. Yeah. 
Um, what are you doing so for the rest of the time? Are you working? What like what? How does I'm your life working. look like? I'm, right. more, I'm barely going to school. Um, I'm like slowly like having to explain like why haven't I graduated from college yet? Um, you know, but it's just it, it it becomes it becomes your focus. It becomes your focus, and you know you find ways to to lie about why you're not doing all the things you should be doing. Right. And people believe them because nobody's assuming that you're in your car breaking up an Oxycontin and snorting right. it. Nobody's thinking like that's your reality, but right. like I'm at the, at my college in a parking garage, huddling over in my car, chopping nice. up a pill, you know, because like, that's like how quickly I needed to get in so I can get to my class. Right, right. So yeah. So, so, so okay. Not so much we're just going on in my life other than that. Right. So we're in the car again. <laughs> in by the, the way. car again. So much happens in the car. There are the car, very right? focal point. Um, and then, right, you get to a point, right, where this is untenable, right, and yeah. and you're you're confronted with a with a new kind of opiate. Yeah. So you know, I always say everybody like eventually tells every lie they could tell. They've told every story. They could borrow every dollar. And in April 2011, I hit that wall, and I had nothing. And I call everybody I know. Nobody's picking up, and it's like it's the worst case scenario. Because now you're, you're hours into your withdrawal and you're panicking. And at no point do you think I should call for help because, as I said, that you don't know what that might lead to. It might lead to right. a furthering of having to feel this way. All right, you're right. trying to do is not feel this way. And I would have done anything, anything to not feel this way. So I finally get a friend of mine on the phone who's an all-girl live. And I say, buddy, I'm in a really bad way, really bad way. You, you know, you got to help me. I got you. I got you. I'll be over in an hour. Three excruciating hours later, and you know, like, and I always say, I'm a, I was a secular Jew at this time. I wasn't very religious or spiritual, and I actually right. like remember cursing at God, being very angry at God. Like, why me? What did I do to deserve this? You know, like because right. that's you feel like you're trapped in a prison of your own body. And you know, three hours later, my friend shows up. He knocks on the door and he says, "You know, brother, I gotta go. Feel better. Feel better. You know, don't you know? Have fun. Right. Go get hot. You know, it's never like that." It's, Feel better. Right. He, knew, he knew what I was going through. You know, shuts the door and I'm looking down at this baggie. And it was weird because, you know, pills didn't usually come in baggies with like things on it. And, and there was the Hulk, you know, the combo character on this bag. And, you know, later on, I was telling this story and somebody was like, is this a metaphorical representation of like the inner? I was like, no, I was just like, no, it was the actual this, Hulk on the little bag. The actual Hulk was on this bag. And I'm, and, and I'm thinking to myself, this is bizarro world. Like I'm like in a bizarro right. world, you know, and I mean, I most people in, don't know that that's the proprietary of some distributor. Exactly. It's a business right. thing. It's a brand. Right. Uh, but I didn't know that, you know, cause you yeah. know, I was yet. You know, I did like <laughs> opiates from pharmaceutical companies and, right. you know, and I look in the bag and it's, it's not pills. It's heroin. Right. And, you know, I knew many, I knew people who did heroin, but I never did. It just wasn't on my radar. I, I didn't like the, like, again, I didn't like the unknown of heroin. I like that I knew exactly how many milligrams I needed every day. You could call me very regimented. I needed right. what I needed. I knew what I need. I knew the exact milligram. I knew how to break it up. But heroin was like another game. It was another system, and I wasn't adept at playing it. But it's interesting. It's also cheaper. I was spending upwards of 80 bucks a day for what somebody for heroin could probably buy for about 20 or 30. So if right. you wanted, if people want to know why many opiate users go to heroin, right. it's financial. Financial right. and so, till this till this day, right? And, and again, now it's it's almost entirely fentanyl, right? There's yeah. there's no real heroin left on the east coast so much. Yes, it's almost all, that, all right, almost all entirely fentanyl and cut with some other things. But um, but yes, know, and I'll say like this: fentanyl I, I encountered cheap. fentanyl once, and it, but it wasn't as like a street fentanyl; it was as a lollipop from a right. pharmaceutical company, and it was so strong. It was one time I couldn't get the oxycon, and, and somebody said, "Oh, I got this fentanyl pop," you know, and I guess they were lollipops for cancer patients yeah. you know and it was so strong in retrospect you realize like wow who knows what could have happened to right. think about that power unregulated on the streets gives me chills you know but but anyway so uh, i'm in, i'm walking to my bathroom and i'm gonna do it at the edge of the bathroom uh, nice. uh toilet on the back you know right of course and it's like, this is like really the hard part to explain because it's more of a feeling. And I try my best to explain it because I'm like feeling like my stomach's like in knots. It's like the flu times a million. Like 
my skin, I wanted to rip my skin off. So it's like a visceral feeling. And within like, it only lasted for seconds. And I want people to understand it was like literally seconds, but it was like a feeling of like a calmness that washed over me. And I can like kind of remember, but it's like, it's happened so fast that almost the memory of it has begun to fade. But I remember a distinct feeling of like being really calm for a moment. And I had like a vision, like almost like an image in my head popped up that like, if I did this, I was going to die. I just knew it. I was so convinced of it. And like, I didn't know if I was going to die then and there, but I was like, I'm going to die if I do this. And without thinking, I really acted really quickly. I took the heroin, I flushed it down the toilet and I called my parents and I just, I said, I'm, I'm in a really, really bad situation and, and I need your help. And they were shocked and upset, but more than anything, they just wanted to help their son. They just right. wanted to help their son. So, so you go home, right? Okay. Right. You go home. They, they help you, right? They find the professionals for so, you. So here's how this goes. So the stigma of addiction is bad today, but it's not nearly as bad as it was 11 That's years right. ago. That's right. The thought of going to an in-treatment facility I thought was going to ruin my life. Right. The drugs weren't going to ruin my life. Right, somehow right, but the, somehow right. being known that I did this thing, I felt like in my mind, I was convinced I was going to get a job. You know, I still thought maybe I worked in right. politics. I refused to go. I said, I'm not going anywhere where it's going to be documented or people are going to see me. That's how bad I felt like the stigma was. Now, it's still it still is, by the way, still I, I still it still it really still is. I mean, we we say past, but this is this is still the reality for a lot of people. Definitely, definitely. And that's part of what we're here today. We're trying to move that's that right. along, but that's it's right. still so bad. So my family has resources and like, I'm very lucky, you know, right. resources many families don't have. The next day they were able to get me to see a private outpatient doctor who specialized in addiction. So mm-hmm. I'm like, the next day I'm in this guy's office and I'm like dying. I'm like, you know, I'm still in it. And he's sitting there, he's talking, he's like, listen, you know, we're learning new things about addiction every day. You know, we, and he threw some number out, you know. 70, 80% of people relapse who do it cold turkey. There are new medications. And he goes, this is controversial because we don't know, but he's, there's these new medications that might help. And this is now called medically assisted treatment. And he right. goes, listen, he told me this. I'll never forget. He said, this could take years, years. It could take years of your life. But if you follow my, my advice, you follow my regimen, I believe it could save your life. And that's all I was looking for. And it worked for me. And I know it's controversial. Some people don't agree with it. It worked for me. Um, You know, I know people misuse these drugs. All I ever wanted was to reclaim my life. And I needed those years to slowly rebuild. Um, Remember, because I also had real pain. I had to figure out what, what, what was my pain level, you know, and, you know, and a lot of that it was. So I think when it comes to recovery, everybody's different. Everybody is different paths. And I always say, if somebody's trying to sell you only one way to recover for all the variety of different addictions, they're probably selling you an ideology or something they believe very true about themselves. So, yeah, that's right. So, so he, so you get on this regiment, you, you work with this doctor, it's starting to write to effect where presumably you are on a previous version of, right, of buprenorphine or one of these sort of like, right, naloxone or one of those. So like that helps yeah, to like take out, take out buprenorphine. Yeah, exactly. So, so, right. So. Start at a very uh, high dose of it. That's right. And then you taper down, right. So, so for people yeah. who don't know, right, that's what, like you said, MAT, medically assisted treatment, where you sort of like uh, uh, reacclimate the body to the receptors of pain until you get to a level that is. Oh, and I needed my, my, my pain levels. I didn't, for years, and to this day, my wife, like, you know, if I hurt myself, she'd say, are you okay? Because I, I think I cry out in a way. I'm like, I feel like I don't, my, it's still to this day, I think my pain levels are really messed up, really messed up. But oh, for, it took sure. years to even get them, sem- like a semblance of normalcy. Right, um, right. And, and one of the things I'll say to people who go, well, aren't you substituting one drug for another? And I think it's a fair question. I never judge anybody right. for asking me that. And what I tell them is I never in a million years could taper down off of the oxys. It was only ever going up, up and up and up and never down. But I found personally that it was a very stable existence on these medicines. I was able to slowly taper down to where I'm now, what's called a maintenance dose. I don't take it every day. I take it when it's needed. I have surgery. I have something I take, you know, so 
Um, like, like I said, it worked, it worked for me, but it was only one part of my recovery, but it was a main part. Right. Look, I mean, I, here's, here's, as you said, I think here's the crux of it all that part of what we're doing at Chuba Center and in general, and I think the more we learn about this, the more we realize that the, the, the double-edged sword, which is the uniqueness of the soul, right? When we talk about the uniqueness of each individual and the uniqueness of each, of each soul means sort of that each life is unique. And if each, if each life is unique, then each um, treatment plan, right? Each recovery plan, each sort of like right sobriety plan is as unique to the person as everything else. And mm. I think for some people, right? Yeah. Yes, they need years under sort of like supervision yeah. and those, and that works for some people. Yes. It's the abstinence and it's cold Turkey. And once and for all, for yeah. some, it's a combination. Yeah. I mean, it's right? 12 I, steps. I, some it's going to like, a, you right. know, AA, you know, it, we're talking about vastly different substances, different right. people. You're so right. And I think for a long time when, you know, treatment wasn't well known or there wasn't a lot of education about what treatment could look like. You had to paint with a broad brush right. because you were trying your best you could. I, I don't fault anybody, but it was right. like, this is what works for people. Let's try to give it to as many people as possible. But we're learning more. If, if this right. is truly medical, a medical disease, maybe there are medical options. Maybe it's, if there's right. also a spiritual disease, maybe there's spiritual options, emotional, et cetera. So yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. with you hundred percent. Yeah, and I think that's really important because I think it is both, to be honest. I think it is a spiritual malady, and I think it has a medical component, yeah. right? And and like many other things, but much like diabetes, type 2 diabetes, part of it, right? Part of it is is taking the pills or, right, the metformin and, and maybe insulin and that, but part of it is also you're going to have to change your lifestyle. You're yeah. going to have to exercise more and, and do other things, right? You can't do one or the other. And I think, and, and you know, and, it, and it's for people who are listening, right, so like this exact issue is is uh, a couple of weeks ago podcast when I was talking to to Dr. Jonathan Avery about this where we we can't just look at the medicine and we can't just look at the uh, at the spiritual components right we have to again create a a more wholesome approach right we have to focus on health rather than on holistically medicine. Holistically, right. as a whole. I mean, and that's so Jewish. It's so Jewish to think of the whole. When that's we talk, right. when we pray for recovery of people, we're not talking about just, you know, the recovery that they're experiencing from the illness. We're talking about their, their, the spiritual recovery, too, that goes right. along with it. Uh, but that that's the deeper work. That's the deeper right. work. As you know, doing that type of work, it, it takes it takes years and it takes individualism of figuring out what's going to connect for each person. That's right. That's right. And, and like you said, right? You had a back injury, but where you felt it was in your leg. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and right. And the body is like that. And the spiritual body is the same way, right? So like yeah. everything affects everything. Yeah. So so you're in your parents' house, presumably, right? You're under medical care, you're doing yeah. your thing. Um not a fun your parents, time. right? Interestingly enough, right, are have a funeral home, right? Yeah, my family owns Jewish funeral homes and you know, I always joke, I never wanted to be a funeral director. I, I really admire what funeral directors do, but I knew early on it wasn't for me. Right. But it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I needed to rebuild my life. I needed a right. job that like was like steady, but people understood and like it, it really worked out perfectly. Right. Um, and slightly the, quirky, right? And I feel slightly off, yeah. right? I feel like, I feel like, I think that that helps, right? It's sort of like, what do you do? Oh, I'm a funeral director. Um, okay. <laughs> it's an interesting job. It's 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 a very pastoral job. It's I, yeah. I I appreciate it more and more every day. But I just knew it wasn't for me. And I you know I, there's stories about working at the funeral home that I just like you know it's the it's a crazy crazy business. But it I'm turned sure. out to be a blessing because I was a secular Jew, and it was like the first time I remember seeing rabbis doing this amazing pastoral work of helping families. And it right. wasn't then, it was almost like I had forgotten what had happened as a child right. with my rabbi. But like working with these rabbis, I was like, whoa, I got a lot of baggage. I hate rabbis. I have a mistrust right. of rabbis. What's that about? And it was the first time that somebody introduced me to Reconstructionism, which I had never heard of. And it just, it spoke to me. It spoke to me on right. many levels. But the thinking was, not I'm going to be a rabbi. It was like that. That's like I'm going to be. Oh, a that's Jew. interesting. That's great. Good for you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good for you. But maybe I'll be a Jew. Maybe I'll be Jew. What could that look like? 
And, you know, we started this interview talking about cars and that you're right. Cars have played a formative role in my life. And it was December 2012. So it was like a, a little over a year from now I'm in recovery. I'm working at the funeral home and there was a really bad snowstorm. And all the funerals that weekend were canceled except for one. Now, if you go to these old cemeteries, I'm sure in New York, any place in the Northeast, these old Jewish cemeteries, the monuments are so close together. Like you could barely walk through them because they're like they've degraded and everything's kind of sinking in. It's a really old cemetery. Get there. The guy who died, he was in his 90s and his sister was like 89 and she was in a wheelchair. They couldn't get the wheelchair to the graveside. So the rabbi at the time and the family made the call that the sister would have to sit in the car. And I was like heartbroken. I'm like, what an injustice. Horrible. You know, in retrospect, nothing could have been done. It was just a shitty situation. But I'm feeling like angst and anger about this thing. So the funeral starts and we're standing there in the snow. You know, like the snow's like to my like oh, under my knees. It's crazy. You know, we're freezing. And I'm like looking around and I'm like, I'm looking at the car and I see her. And she's like gazing out the window. And I'm like, oh, this is just like pulling at my soul. So I walk up to the car and I knock on the window. And I say, ma'am, my name's Michael. I'm from the funeral home. You know, could I come in? Can I sit with you? She kind of like motions me in the car. And I shut the door and we're sitting in the back seat of this car. And it's really awkward. Nobody's, she's not talking. I'm not talking. And she's staring out, you know, at the direction of the funeral. And I say, ma'am, would you mind telling me about your brother? And she turns around and it was almost like she was waiting for that moment, waiting for somebody to ask. And she starts telling me how he saved her from the Nazis and they walked across Europe. And like, he was like the reason she was alive, all these powerful stories. And I had a revelation. It was the first time in my life I had just listened to somebody. It was like, it was this weird moment where I realized I had not, not spoken in a conversation like my whole life, my whole life. I'm talking and I'm just listening to this woman. And, you know, I'm still new to, to Judaism and I don't know any prayers. I only know one, the mourner's cottage. It's the only prayer I knew because I worked at a funeral home and I could hear the service wrapping up behind me. And I say to her, I said, ma'am, you know, would you like to say the mourner's cottage with me? And she kind of nods her head. Yes. And we say the, the mourner's cottage together. And when we were done, she had this kind of look on her face. She didn't say anything, but it was a look of like, thank you. You just gave me the greatest gift anybody's ever given me. It was like that kind of look. And after years of only thinking about myself, it felt like the first time I had ever really helped somebody or, you know, really given somebody something special. And I walked out of the car in a daze. I was like, how do I do that? Always. I want to do that forever. Whatever that was, I want to do that. And about a week later, I told, was telling somebody this story because it was so powerful. And they said, well, well you could be a rabbi. And I said, <laughs> are you fucking nuts? I can't be a rabbi. Like, not, thinking not only like I don't know enough, but like the recovery. They're like, maybe you could be a rabbi. Why don't you go talk to the, to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College? And I said, okay, okay. So a week later, you know, we had a lot of connections because of the funeral home business. I speak, you know, with a rabbi and they go, you could be a rabbi. You don't know, you don't know enough to be a rabbi, but you could be a rabbi. And so from there, I decided to go to Israel because I needed to immerse myself in Hebrew. I didn't know any Hebrew. And I, like a little over a year later, I guess I immersed myself enough in this culture and this, you know, and it was interesting because I also got to learn about like what recovery in Israel looked like, what that was like which was a cool experience, but it was enough to get me into rabbinical school. And I started a year after that. Wow. Yeah. There must be a moment in rabbinical school, right? Where you're kind of looking at your life and thinking to yourself, how, if, uh, how did I get here? Right? Like there must be moments of yeah. like, this is. Impos I, think, Iggy, I think you can attest to this. Imposter syndrome is a really powerful thing, I yes. think, for most rabbis. But, but what, I, what I came to find was I wasn't the only one in recovery. Right. And this is what's shocking to people. So many rabbis kind of deal with this, but none of them like 
really wanted to be very out with it. They didn't want right. to be very vocal about it. They were content with having it be a part of like our inner rabbinical circles. Right. So I kind of knew early on, I wasn't kind of out of the mainstream, so to speak, but you do kind of have those moments. Whoa. What if people find this thing out? How am right. I going to be seen? How am I going to be accepted? Right. Did you tell them at the interview for rabbinical school about this? About your own? Um, I, I didn't tell them in the interview. I no. didn't tell them in the interview, but I, but I, but I was open about it very early on. Once I realized how, like you know, it was a very warm and welcoming place. You right. know, I felt very safe to tell it. And I always say it was. It's, it's telling this stuff is about safety. It's like feeling right. comfortable. Um, yeah. But then it take. But then right, it takes. It takes right a decade for you to come out to your congregation or so. Right. So like, or or, or a long time to come out to the congregation. Yeah. I knew probably halfway through rabbinical school, I wanted to share this. I knew it could be powerful. So I'm in rabbinical school and, you know, I had a professor. She was the first, her name's Linda Holtzman. She was the first, uh, I believe, LGBTQ rabbi to come out ever into a conservative congregation um, back in the 80s. And I was taking a walk with her and I was asking her about this and you know, and I said to her, I said, how did you know? And, and, and how did you know when the right time was? Because I was explaining to her my situation, how I might want to do this. And I'll never forget. She said, when you're in a community and you feel loved and supported, you'll know when it's the right time. So I didn't know when that would be, but I had that in my mind that when I felt like there was a moment where I was loved and supported and felt comfortable, I knew I wanted to share this. I didn't know when, but I knew I wanted to eventually do it. It happened a lot sooner than I expected, but but yeah, it was something I wa- had wanted to do since rabbinical school. So was there a moment? What was the moment that you said, you know what, I have to say this. I have to come out with this. It was a lot of things. I could tell you it was just one thing, but it wasn't. It was it, was it being 10 years, you know, that was a very important moment. Um, for me being 10 years in recovery, it was losing friends and feeling like how lucky and grateful I am to be here and how, how do I honor their memory? And, um, how could I, if this could help people and if it could save a life and I'm, you know, in the Talmud, if you could save one life, it's like saving a universe, you know, it was all that. It was like, it was all running through my mind, but I also felt like, wow, I just worked really hard. I, I came from a place of having no one's respect, feeling a lot of shame, feeling like I ruined my life. I'm finally in a place where people respect me and I'm like a community leader. Am I really going to throw all that away? And, you know, I had a lot of conversations with family members, my wife, and, you know, people were really worried about me sharing this, but I had this conviction. And I to this day, I... You know, I, I operate on intuition. I had a conviction that it was it was going to be okay, that people were going to understand. And whatever whatever happened, if people didn't, I would face that. But I just knew it was important, and I, and I took a leap of faith. It was probably the biggest leap of faith I've ever taken ex- besides going to rabbinical school. And it, it, you know, I couldn't even begin to imagine the impact it would have, but it's had this amazing impact. Hmm. Are there, were there people who said, you know what, then no, I, I, I refuse to be a congregant or around somebody who, who has done this or who is suffering from, from this addiction? Yeah, I hear you. So I want to say, and I want to be very honest. By and large, the reception was amazingly positive, amazingly positive. And I think that's the important point to lead with. But there were people who were upset and they weren't upset for the reasons you described. They were upset. One of the things that I got after was, should I have said this in my interview? Was I being unethical by hiding this? And what I told them was, well, first off, if you had asked me this in the interview and you didn't give me the job, first off, that's illegal. You can't ask anybody about their medical history and I could have probably sued you. So don't do that. Um, But secondly, this was mine to share. 
I, nobody should make anybody share that, you know, I felt like it was something I wanted to do. And that was the only reason I did it. So I, I kind of rejected the idea that I was on, acting unethically by having not sharing it in my interview because they didn't know me. Why would I share something like this? Would you go in an interview and tell the first interview I have like some kind of illness or can't? You know, you wouldn't do that. So, yeah, I kind of rejected that premise. And the other one was like, Rabbi, you know, I don't need to know this about you. This isn't important. And, you know, that's fine. And, you know, listen, I uh, we can have disagreements about like, you know, what you feel like a rabbi is and what they need to be vocal about. But this was important to me. And in all those situations, we've worked through that. I've worked with those congregants. I think a lot of that kind of stuff comes from other things or deeper things from in their lives. But we've worked through it. And, you know, it's funny. I went to one of my board members and I was really upset about it early on. And they went, Rabbi, you won this game 98 to 2. Are you really going to worry about the two? But I guess it's the hazard of our business. We want to please everybody. Right, right. I I, I would say, like, uh, I'm a rabbi. Of course, I'm worried about the two. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Do you remember the first moment that you said to yourself, okay, this is not a problem for me anymore in terms of not that I'm fixed or I'm not in that, but like, like, oh my God, I, I'm not suffering from this, from this anymore. Yeah, it took years. It took years. And I, I, to this day, this is also why I think talking about addiction is important because I think it manifests differently for different people. So my fear is not that I'm going to wake up one morning and go, oh, I need to get high. I need an opiate. I need a painkiller. That is absolutely not my fear. It never crosses my brain. My fear is that I'm going to be in an accident. I'm going to end up in the hospital. They're going to give it to me against my will. Um, And it's scary. I live with that fear every day. And, you know, all I can say is, and what I tell people is, I know what I know now. You know, I I can't take these medicines. I've been in the hospital for really bad things. I've had kidney stones. And it's funny. You hear all these stories about people in real pain going to emergency rooms and not getting opiates because of the world we live in now. That was not my situation I went to for kidney stones and they were trying to push it on me. And I said, listen, I'm not taking these medications. You better come back to me with another option. Um, So, you know, I've had to suffer because of this in ways that I – don't like, but you know, listen, if the day comes and I'm in a really bad way with a surgery and and I know what I know now and I'll handle it the best I can. But yeah, I do live with that fear, but it's not like where you hear people thinking like, oh, I'm going to relapse in the way because I'm feeling the urge or I'm feeling triggered. That's not how my, my addiction works. Mine's just, I know I can't take these medications. What happens or what's happening with the anxiety and the stress and the depression you're describing? So this is why I think it's important to talk about recovery holistically, Um, because just getting off drugs doesn't help cure those things. Um, Mental health is 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 ever changing and it manifests differently in different parts of my life. And, you know, one of the things that I've been very open about is that I'm, you know, I have OCD and I'm very germaphobic. And, you know, I, you know, I think a lot of my anxiety came from that. And so I've, you know, and I, you know, I'm in therapy for that and I get help for that. So I'm always telling people, you know, don't feel like you have to hide your, your ailments or the things that that you're struggling with. Seek help, whether it's like self-care and working out, which I love to do, listening to music. I'm a big pop culture person. I love watching TV and movies. That's like my self-care. Put on a good movie and I'll be in like, it it just has always been an escape to me. So I think that's why movies were always self-care to me because it was like a way of escaping my life for a couple hours. Um, But, you know, I find different ways to, to figure out how I'm at peace with my life. Um, And it's hard. It's been hard in the pandemic. It's been hard being a caregiver to so many people. Um, And I don't have it perfectly, you know, figured out, but, you know, I I work through it every day. What is the most important thing for congregants to know or or, or people around, sort of like right um, around both your personal sort of struggle with addiction, but also as 
it's just a message at large to sort of where the sort of both you and I are talking in general about sort of like yeah. rabbis who are in recovery. I, I want to say that while I would never sit, tell like a rabbi who's in recovery that you have to be vocal about this, my feeling was people come to me every day and entrust me with the most vulnerable parts of their lives. I kind of felt like, who am I not to be able to share this with my congregant? I feel like rabbis sometimes don't trust their congregants enough. Um, I think boundaries are really important in the rabbinate, as, as you know, and as we've seen, when there's a lack of boundaries, like bad things happen. But I didn't see this as a boundary issue. I felt it as like a really powerful moment where my congregation could sense like I trusted in them the same way they trust in me every day. And it goes back like full circle to my rabbi who like really betrayed that trust, who kind of violated that rabbi congregant trust. I wanted to honor that. And I feel like I did. And I think it's an example. And it works for maybe mental health. Maybe it works for a million different things that rabbis can be more open. They can trust their congregants um, if it's done in the right way with a lot of care. And I took a lot of care to figure out and I took years to figure out how to properly do this. But I think it was well worth it. Mm. Is anything in this process of both sort of the, the recovery, but also sort of coming out as a rabbi, if you will, um, uh, has any of this uh, surprised you? Is there any elements that you like? Wow, I didn't, I didn't expect yeah. this. I listen. My story is no different than a million of Americans. I know that. But I also knew when I put rabbi before the story, it was going to make people pay attention. I was banking on it because I wanted I wanted to change the stigma of addiction. I, I wasn't prepared for how far this story would travel and how what kind of an impact it would have. I thought it'd be a big deal for like a day or two and people would pay. But for weeks after, I received hundreds, if not a thousand emails, like people telling me their stories. Like, you know, I was on the news in Israel two weeks later, like people really took to this story. And I think it's because we're in a cultural moment where people are realizing two things. One, how bad the overdose epidemic is in this country um, and how much it needs to be solved. But two, that, you know, this stigma of addiction in specifically the Jewish community, but maybe all communities um, is really a, a, a harmful stigma that keeps people from getting the help they need. And I always say the first order of business has to be changing the stigma. Until we right. change the stigma, people aren't going to get help because there's too people. There's too much to lose. There's too much to risk. And I'm hoping that like, and we, you know, Iggy, we had this conversation, and you said, you know, you remember like give people that. Well, how do we put it? Um, giving people the permission. The that's permission, right. that sense of relief. I believe that's what you said. Permission. Yep. That's really powerful. And I feel like I didn't, I didn't fully understand what I'd be giving permission to, which was a lot of people being at peace with what's going on in their life or their family's life. So that, that felt really, really good. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's really important because I do think that, um, that when rabbis, spiritual leaders, leaders in general sort of come out with their own stories of recovery, um, it, it does exactly that. It gives permission people to feel like, oh, this is also, this is something that I'm going through as well. And and not the the pretend that everything is all right or right, the the mm. the exemplars we want our rabbis to be, right? So like in many ways, yeah. uh, right? So like part of the problem in knocking them off the pedestal. That's right. But but part of the problem what you're describing with your own youth uh, and the rabbi, right, who 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 paid to kill his wife Right. Is because yeah. part of it, we did put them on the pedestals. Right. Rabbis don't do that. Yeah. Right. Like so. Yeah. So right, yeah. So by, it's, by, it's, it's a generational difference, I think. And I think people respond more to what I see as authenticity today than maybe right. before. Maybe it was an idea that we need rabbis to look and act a certain way. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that maybe go into this. Maybe it's something about being a minority in America right. and having to project excellence and and doing really good. You know, maybe it's it's, it's I always say it's never one thing, um, but there is with any spiritual leader, any community leader, omitting something 
is it, it has that powerful impact of letting other people feel like they're not in alone and that it's okay to talk about it. Right. I mean, that's the thing, right? It's bringing humanity back into the ravenant. <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah. So it's, it's allowing and people you know to be human. Thing, but it, more than that, too, I think, what, you know, we look at culture today and so many people are like self-destructing and you watch the news and you, you see these celebrities self-destructing or politicians. And I've always kind of thought that people who self-destruct is because they're not living their authentic lives. We're not True. allowing them to be the people they need to be in the world. And so they're suppressing something that's going to just blow up. And I think anybody who kind of self-destructs has that. So I didn't want that. I didn't want that in my life. I didn't want to one day go off the rails and because I might have had that. So, yeah, let people live their authentic selves. It's the holy thing to do, you know, and, and I think like it elevates. It elevates who we are and the relationships we can have in the world. People now connect to me on a whole higher level because I've been honest about who I am. It's right. brought a lot of craziness into my life. And some days I'm like, should I have done this? Like, this is a lot more than maybe I've needed. Um, but at the end of the day, I know I did the right thing. I know for right. several reasons, but I know I did the right thing. Right. So, so, so let me, let's just, so why is it still so difficult, right? Why is it still so, right? There's so much what we call, right, Shonda, right? So like, there's so much yeah. of this, right? I have rabbis, who have told me, oh, Iggy, this is really important work, but it's not an issue for my community. I've had people say to me like, oh, this is anecdotal, right? So like I, I, I encounter a lot of resistance uh, in, in, sort of like in my travels. So uh, yeah. why is that? What, what do you think? <laughs> you think it's bullshit? It is. I bullshit. think it's bullshit. I think it's bullshit. It I think, I, I, I think, and, and, you know, it's funny because like, Coming from my experience, you think I would have been well prepared to hear these stories. But even when I became a rabbi at Temple Sinai and, and my congregants were sharing that they were struggling with this in their families, even I was like, whoa, like, why aren't we talking about this? Why is it so hidden? Um, you know, I think rabbis mean well, but I think when they're uneducated on a topic, they get really insecure. I think they get really insecure. They don't want to look like they're, you know, not smart or not with it. And, and I think we need to do a, a really important change in the Jewish community on educating every Jewish leader on these issues, because I think you're going to see so many more people admitting this issue and also looking to their, to their rabbis for help in a really real way. Is there something that you think people should know um, and, and, and this is both true for perhaps clergy who are dealing with this or, or congregants or just people who are listening to this, that, that you think is, you know, as, uh, uh, somebody we both know about by Mark Borowitz, right. Who, who, who taught me like the lies we tell ourselves, hmm. you know? Yeah. For, for rabbis or for everybody? Both. <laughs> oh. I think it's, I think, I think it's different, but I think it's the same. Um, I think that part of my recovery was a Jewish recovery. I didn't know it at the time. I wouldn't have called it a Jewish recovery, but it was learning Musar has become like a central part of my recovery, figuring out my spiritual characteristics, figuring out what's my humility, what's my anger, what's my, you know, what's my patience like. Um, you know, Judaism is a, is a, a fountain of, of wisdom that I think is untapped in this area. I don't think we've even begun to really explore all the ways our tradition might be able to speak on this issue. And I'm not trying to say people haven't spoke on this issue. I know mm -hmm. Rabbi Mark, Rabbi Paul Steinberg, there, there are mm -hmm. people who've spoken on this issue, but Chuba I think Center. there's a deep, well, yeah, yeah, to you, uh, you know, but like, <laughs> There's, there's so much more that I think remains to be uncovered that I can't wait for us to like figure out and get to. Um, so that's why I kind of want to remove this from the, the, the shadows. Um, but for people living a lie, I would say to them, what's your fear? Tell me, what's your fear about living this lie? 
because it might be justifiable. Maybe that fear is justifiable. And maybe that's you don't come out in this big way the way I did it. Well, but maybe it means maybe you can come out to the people closest to you. Maybe it means you could come out to people you've never come out to. Maybe you could come out at your work. Maybe you never considered that. It doesn't have to be you go on Facebook or do what I did and go in this big global, you know, but ask, why are you living this lie? What's the fear and figuring out what's the proper way to move forward? Because talking your truth sets you free. I am a, it might sound, it might sound all wishy, you know, it might, you know, I believe it. It, it. it sets you free. I don't have that angst anymore of like, I have this thing that nobody knows. If people find out, what are people going to think? That burden is off my shoulders. And I think anybody could have that. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree with that. And I agree with everything you said. And I, and I do think that sort of this is where our world's kind of like sort of like intersected. I, I, I'm a huge believer that it is through Jewish wisdom infused with AA infused with recovery that we can find ways for people to find meaning in their life. Yeah. And at the end of the day, recovery is about finding meaning, right? And and, more than anything, more More than than anything. anything. Absolutely. And, and the ability for people to not just deal with their fears, but to recognize their value in their humanity is, is at the core of what, of what we do. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of that changes like with language too, the way we that's talk right. about things. And, and, you know, I'm fond of saying like, if you think addicts abuse drugs instead of drugs abusing addicts, you need to change the way you think. Right. You know, even like, I don't say clean anymore. I don't say I'm clean anymore because I wasn't dirty and I'm not right. dirty. And, you know, it's like the slow things and like a lot of this is deep in the culture and that's fine for us to own certain terms. But like, I, I'm just seeing things differently because I see my value differently. I didn't ask for this. Nobody asked for this. And you know what? And I want to say this because it's really important because people hear my story and they see it as like the hallmark, you know, of like drug stories because, you know, there is not a good addiction and there is not a bad addiction. There is just addiction. If you come away from my story thinking, oh, that's a good addiction. I get it. Then you've not heard one thing I've said. Don't, if you think I got the good addiction, I'm the okay person, and the guy living on the street or the person living on the streets, the bad, you you're not paying attention. So so we gotta rethink this whole thing because like anything, what we've learned with racism or or homophobia, it's deeply ingrained or anti-Semitism, it's deeply ingrained in our society, and we all have implicit biases. And until we do the work, it's just gonna remain there, and it's gonna you know it's gonna affect our relationships and how we engage people. No, a hundred percent. I think that sort of, right. As you said in your story, you were very lucky to have fortunate parents yeah. and, and resources, but I know people who were exactly where you are. Nice kids from nice Jewish homes who had a car accident, who this, who then went into and used the heroin because they had no other choice and they did not have somebody to go home to, or they did not have the resources. And then it's on the street yeah. and then it's homelessness and, and all that. So the person on the street that people scoff at, yeah. um, could be could your be you. cousin. Could be you. It could be could absolutely be anybody. Could be you. And very easily could be you. And 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 the thing about addiction is it's very humbling. And I, you know, there, a day doesn't go by that I don't see somebody who's like da- down and out that I don't think that can't be me. It's absolutely. easy. It could be anybody. And and you know, addiction is a is a powerful thing, but recovery is more powerful. And if you can overcome addiction, like we were saying earlier, you can do anything. You could do anything. Um, So I I, I really hope this begins a conversation where, you know, the Jewish community, because if we step up as a community, as we've done on other issues, the the resources, the money, I mean, we'd be able to tackle this issue in our community in a profound way. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, for sure. That's, that's the thing, right? As again, as sort of, as uh, as Harriet Rosetta says, right? So like, uh, uh, we, we use we always use we always use. You don't have to be an addict to be in recovery, which is which is true. But yeah. she uh, writes slightly harsher than, than I am. Right? Says like you're either in recovery or you're in denial, and and in that sense, sort of like everybody needs to be in recovery, right? It's so so it's not opiates, but it's it's foods, it's gambling, it's sex, it's anger, it's phones, right? It's 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 criminality, it's Definitely. you know, it's gambling. Uh, also just low grade misery, yeah. right? People who are just addicted to their own misery, yeah. uh, is also an addiction. Yeah. Um, and we know plenty of those, I'm sure. Um, uh, last words, last thoughts. 
just that I'm really excited. Uh, I'm excited to talk to people like you. I'm excited to be doing this work. Um, I, I'm a hopeful person. I, I don't know. I feel like I feel like I operate from a place of hope, and uh, I'm really excited what the future holds in this space. Um, so you know, feel you know if you you want to connect, I always tell people reach out to me. I'm, I'm always open to talk and and to, to collaborate. That's right. And and if there are clergy rabbis listening to this and who are seeking help, who, who also are still afraid, uh, I've always found that sort of rabbis can only not be rabbis with other rabbis. Um, so and so Chuva Center has twice a month. We have a Chuva group on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Uh, for 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 clergy. Uh, if you are a member of most um, rabbinical assemblies and guilds uh, at the bottom, you'll see there should be a line. That sort of this says that, but you can also reach Chuba Center and uh, and you can come in and meet with us awesome. uh, for for further support. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, really, uh, thank you so much. Thank this you. has been fascinating. Thank you for your bravery and your story and your openness and your candor and your leadership around this. Um, I do think the more uh, people like you stand up and say, like, "Hey, I'm I'm human. Yeah. <laughs> I have a story. I have pains too," yeah. um, and uh, it may have started as uh, addiction has may have started as a solution to that pain, but the true solution is authenticity and recovery and and mm. and spirituality, right? Amen. Our own spirituality in Judaism. You said it so, all. You said it yeah. all. Thank you, Iggy. It's been my so, honor. You know, keep doing what you're doing. I think like let's just all go from strength to strength. Let's just keep doing. Amen. It. Amen. Yeah. This podcast was recorded by Chuba Center. I want to thank our team: Bade Lichman, Grace Sheed, and Sadie Baker Wax who made this all possible and made sure that the guests and I sound as best as we can. Thank you for listening. As always, for Chuva Tuesday and all the other programming, you can check our Instagram and our website at Chuva Center, T-S-H-U-V-A-H, Center, C-E-N-T-E-R, of course, ChuvaCenter.org.